Hey, everybody. How are you? I'm changing up my introduction. Uh, this is Jerusalem U's The Israel Teacher's Lounge, where we want to make sure that you don't feel far away from Israel and what's going on here and gain understanding of current events. I got to work on it. I got to work on it. I'm a little bored of my usual intro. I'm trying to come up with something. We'll come up with it on the fly. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Excellent, Mike, especially sitting here in the old city, looking at the Israeli flag flying above the buildings above our, our offices here. It's been a glorious, uh, really spring, early spring day. Yeah, on the roof of the Jerusalem U offices, we have this nice lounge area. So <clears throat> today the teacher's lounge is out of doors. We are also here with always producer and sometimes uh, panel member Matt Littman. And how are you, Matthew? I'm enjoying the new introduction this morning. It's very nice. Yeah. It does feel good not to say the same thing over and over again. Um, I'm wondering, by the way, if we should change the name for today's broadcast to The Teacher's Rooftop. That is up to you. You'll have to talk to the good people at iTunes and Spotify and see if we can change the name (coughs) with that sort of alacrity. Um, We announced last week that we're going to start a new segment. We're going to be talking about current events and current political brouhaha's. Or is the plural bruise haha? Brew hi hi. So we'll figure that out. We'll have to, you English teachers will have to let us know. But today's uh, topic is going to have to wait a few minutes as we start with our new segment, Question of the Week. And I have already blown this segment by forgetting who asked me the question. I remember it was at MTVA, and I can't remember who asked me the question. So we'll have to. I know it's female because it was MTVA. That's Midrashat Torah Vavodah, Bnei Kiva's women's seminary, Gap Year Women's Seminary. Yes. An excellent Midrashah, an excellent place to teach and I assume to learn, although I never learned there as a student because I am not a 18-year-old girl. And it's only four years old. Yeah. And I am much older than that. But the question was, and I'll, we'll have to get the name. I feel very guilty. But we'll have to get the, the name. But the, the question was, in the War of Independence... Did the new army Tsaha, which begins, I guess, on May 15th to be an army, did they stay within the borders of the state that the UN um, ratified to exist? In other words, the UN in 1947 created a Jewish state and an Arab state in Palestine. Did Tsaha stay within those borders? She kind of had a feeling they didn't, especially with Jerusalem not being at all within the UN's allotted borders. And her question was, why did they do that? If the UN said this is where the Jewish state should be, then why isn't that where Tzahal fought? And we're going to spend five minutes maximum on the question before we get to today's topic. Who wants to take a shot at answering? So can I go back and do a little history thing? Yes. Which is the, uh, officially you're right, the name of the Haganah, which it was the underground pre-state main defense force that was run by the Jewish agency or David Ben-Gurion who was the head of both. Um, officially changed its name, became the state, you know, the, the IDF, Israel Defense Forces, with the, the announcement of the state. But tactically and strategically, um, most people put the beginning of the IDF at the beginning of April um, 1948, about a month before the declaration, when they actually, the, the um, operation Nachshon, to open the road to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem had been under siege for a few months by the Arab forces, mostly local forces, but not exclusively. And um, they basically started 
functioning as a as a regular army in that April. With that was like the first operation of the army. So that already goes to show you answers also your question that first of all because there was already war raging the the Arab side um, had declined the partition plan. The local Palestinian Arabs and no and international also and the, the Arabs around the Arab League had also said no we're not accepting it um, and of course the the partition plan was a general resolution general assembly resolution so it wasn't binding so there's nothing even binding to it so there's nothing really to say because the Jews didn't have to it was, a, it was an idea it was an idea how, the idea was how can we solve this problem that we have two nations vying for the same land um, so uh, it, you know they gave this idea and, but once the fighting begins so basically all bets are off so we see that Israel from the beginning understood David Ben-Gurion particularly understood the importance of Jerusalem because there were those who say okay let's let Jerusalem go but the importance historically demographically because there's 100,000 Jews a sixth of the population were living in Jerusalem so it was clear that they were not going to give up Jerusalem but then all bets were off basically make secure borders wherever you wherever you can with as much uh, property as you can really right so I'll do the follow-up question that students often attach to that, which is, well, okay, so now you're being hypocritical. If you, if you, if we are excited about November 29th, 1947, that the UN declared us a state, and then we say, well, that declaration is not binding. We don't have to listen to it. <clears throat> Let alone 242 and 67, that we don't have to listen to the Security Council, which is binding. Well, pick, you're picking and choosing. You're saying I, when the UN tells me something I like, I treat their declarations very seriously. When the UN tells me something I don't like or that doesn't work to my advantage in my perceived self-interest, then we just ignore the UN. Which is it, oh, globalist Zionist? Well, first of all, they didn't, uh, they didn't declare, the UN didn't declare us a state. They said, this is how we think you should solve the problem. I understand, but you make a big so. deal about that they declared that the Jews had a right to a state. But then, so okay, so then, so then, so then, so then Israel accepts. So let's let's play the scenario that that Matt liked to play. I think he wrote in his blog. What if the Arabs had said, "Okay, let's do that"? Do we think that there would have been a war? Do we think that Israel would have taken more land? Right. So in that blog, that, <clears throat> in the blog that Alan is referencing, I presented three different uh, possible outcomes or possible scenarios, and one of them was indeed that the, uh, the Zionist camp decided that the limits of the partition plan were too limiting, that's why they're limits, and there was not a viable space for uh, a viable state, so therefore they would have continued to fight over the borders and try to expand the territory that they had been allocated by this proposal. No, but the, but the other scenario, where the Arabs accept the plan. Right, no, but I'm saying that even if the Arabs would have accepted the plan, then... You're what if that you think it's possible that the Zionists would have said, we'll fight to expand the borders. Yes, I absolutely think so, because after, I think they would have realized that the, the proposal as was presented in, in the partition plan was not really viable for a state. Why wasn't it viable? Partly because of the size. Partly if you look at the map that was, was presented to Israel, find now today they've made the, the, uh, the so, so desert bloom. But at the time, if you'd have presented somebody with a plan and two-thirds of the land that you're allocating to them is, is like desert, you'd be like, well, what is this? How are we going to make a state out of this? But, but they did, and they accepted it. So why didn't the Zionists reject that plan? By exactly what you're saying. I'm saying that I think they would have con no, decided... They, they accepted the plan, so why? They, they accepted why? the plan, and let's say the Arabs would have accepted it, but then I think their eyes would have got bigger than their stomachs, and they would have decided to try and expand it. As we saw it happen, you can argue why it happened in 1967, no, etc. But, but there's, there's no... I think that the Zionist uh, enterprise is an expansionist enterprise, depending how you view expansionism, whether you see it as a bad thing or, or, a, or a good thing. 
I think that would have eventually resulted in the Zionists trying to expand this. You're saying if we lived in peace with two states next to each other, living in total peace, you think the Zionist leaders would have taken aggressive action to steal land from their Arab neighbors? I'm not sure how stable that peace would have been. No, no, no. no, no, no. Hold on. In Alan's premise, it's a stable peace. The Arabs accept and want to live by us as peaceful neighbors. I think the inviability of the UN plan was that the Arabs wouldn't accept it and that the Zionists didn't trust them to accept it. Had inviability, if that's a word, but okay. Had the Arab leadership said, boy, are we happy that our Semitic cousins, the Jews, are going to share Palestine with us, we'll make the United States of two states of Palestine, a Jewish state and an Arab state, and we'll live side by side, you think it's probable that the Jews would have invaded and destroyed that Arab state? I think it's possible. As I said in the blog, I presented three possible scenarios, and I think that's one of them. Yeah, it's possible. I think it's implausible. Yeah, I mean, I think that, the, I think that, the, that they accepted it knowing that the Arabs wouldn't accept it. It was very clear that they would accept it. But I think if the, the Jewish side would have had anything at that moment, and again, remember, Ben-Gurion's whole vision, they fought for the Negev because that was his whole vision, was to make the, the desert bloom. And again, once you have, if you really do have agreement and peace, yeah. then there's no reason why you can't solve you know, territorial issues of cross, crossing borders and non-continuity and, and Jerusalem being an international area. Those are all solvable if you're... If you're if you're working together, Bonagid. Right. So if your if your neighbor is friendly, then you can resolve all the all the difficulties that you're talking about. I don't know why. I don't know why. If you if you're living next door to a peaceful neighbor, then you can work together to resolve whatever territorial transportation or agricultural problems you have. I think that's a very nice idealistic utopian view of it. But so is the hypothetical. The hypothetical is that the Arabs wanted to live in peace. Mm-hmm. I don't think war was inevitable, but. That's the, the hypothetical is utopian. You're saying if the Arabs had been more peace-seeking, then it would have been the Jews who would have been the aggressors. I find highly unlikely knowing what I know about those early Zionist leaders. I'm not stating it as a fact. I'm stating as as a, as a potential possible maybe scenario that we don't know what we don't know. We'll never know. But I don't think I don't think I don't think that fits the image that I have of understanding the way they made their decisions and the way they did things. Okay. At that point, at that point, again, it was you know three years after the Shoah. There were you know a few hundred thousand Jewish refugees in Europe. Others, you know, who knows what would have happened with that? You know, if it was peaceful, Jewish Arab communities may have stayed right. in their in their country for sure. You would have had Jews living in the Arab state and Arabs living in the Jewish state. No, I'm even talking about like Arabs in Iraq and Arabs in you know oh, sure. in those countries where they ended up coming out in Morocco, all flooding into Israel, Yemen. May have all stayed more or less where they were. And you would have had a very small Jewish uh, Jewish state here that was mostly Ashkenazi, and then you wouldn't have needed to expand the borders, <laughs> right? So there's, there's there's too many what ifs there. I don't think anyone answered my question about why are you picking and choosing with the UN. No, so I'll say we're not picking and choosing with the UN. In other words, again, first of all, you have to the, the UN is in a blank place. There are different there are different committees, different places. So first of all, it, it's it's a clear given. General Assembly is not a binding. It's not a binding resolution. Therefore, nobody is bound to stay by it. And what is the, the, the partition plan? The partition plan is the recognition of Jewish rights, um, national rights in the Middle East. Let's put it that way, right? In the Middle East. And, and that's what we accept. Now, you can tell me what exactly those boundaries are. Okay, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to talk about that, just like Israel has always been about 1967. 
but that's only when that when when the other side is also uh, willing to be bound by those and willing to to enter into peace or <laughs> at least ceasefires or non non aggression pacts or whatever you want to say. But once we don't have that other partner, it's not we're picking and choosing. We have no other choice. Right. I would say that a little. Bit, I would say what you're saying, but I would say a little bit differently. In other words, if I were an African American who lived in the Jim Crow South in like the 1940s. That <laughs> yeah, that is different. I would probably... If anybody's ever met Michael, you will know that he's not an African-American. And I don't live in the Jim Crow South in the 40s. But uh, although my, my uh, grandmother did, she uh, grew up in Arkansas. But Arkansas. that's... Yeah, about yeah, Little Rock, Arkansas. So that's neither here nor there. But uh, she, she was significantly older than Bill Clinton. So she's from before Bill. But uh, if I if I if I were driving, I would stay on the speed limit because that's what the law required. But if I was interested in changing the plight of my people, I might sit in an all white counter because I would disobey that rule or sit in the front of the bus. In other words, I obey the law of the state when it's meaningful and productive. But I can civilly disobey laws that are nonsensical, evil or destructive. So I'm not bound to... I, I think you're, everything you're saying is right technically, and I think we are intelligently choosing when we find the UN's decisions to be binding and when we don't, both from legal and technical reasons. But I think there's a broader issue, which is I think critical social thinkers do pick and choose a little bit which laws they think should be followed and which they shouldn't. And also, just for example, and then maybe we'll wrap it up, is that um, you know UNESCO has declared crazy things. I mean, it resolutions about um, uh, heritage sites with um, basically knocking out any Jewish connection, which is a, a fact, such as... Well, the, the Temple Mount, they call Haram al-Sharif, and they put out a document explaining the Muslim connection to Haram al-Sharif and left out any Jewish connection, which is an intended slight, obviously. Right, So, so, and that's a UN uh, committee, so I don't think it binds us um, exactly. completely. Exactly. Was it Mark Twain who said... A patriot is somebody who supports their country always and their government when it deserves it. So that answers that question. I think we've gone overtime on question of the week, which means we will now go to whether our government deserves it. Um, whether, we're, whether or not we're going to have elections before the, the term ends in 2000, November 2019. Well, the current, and I, and, I, and I keep using the term brouhaha. What's a good alternate phrase? The current. Balagan. But back to our Hebrew of the week, yeah. balagan. Exactly. Yes, this is it definitely is. a balagan. The balagan is actually Polish. Oh. <laughs> is that right? The etymology is Polish? Yes, it is. That. It's a Polish word. Huh. I did not know that. It's now Hebrew. It's now Hebrew. It is Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, the government is now in eh, semi-crisis. I, I, I don't think the government's going to shut down, but we have to understand. Not not shut down. Uh, go for new elections. Yeah. Well, that's that's co- closing the current government and then opening up new elections to create the new government. Yeah, I'm only being I'm only being semantic because when we say shut down in government in America, it's a different thing. It means that the. Uh, a hundred percent right. It's a totally different thing. In the United States, a government shutdown means that it's not funded, right. and so nobody has to go to work. Here, when you end a government... Here, okay, so I think we have to explain how a parliamentary system works, yeah. at least standing on one foot very briefly. And then we have to explain what BB is doing, threatening to end his government and call for new elections, and why. Who thinks, in a podcast, in like three minutes, you can explain... You have a minute and a half to explain how a parliamentary system works. Did any of the three of us grow up in a parliamentary system of government? Alan, did nope, you? I didn't either. Matt, did you? Hey, Matt did. 
There you go. All right. Okay. So the way the Israeli system works on one foot in 90 seconds is as follows. When people vote in this country, they do not vote uh, for somebody representing them in their local area, in their local constituency, whereas in the States or in England, you have a local representative. Here, that is not the case. Each party presents a list of candidates, um, and you vote for the party that you uh, wish to vote for. And then... After all the votes are in, they then divvy up the uh, the number of votes and they do something called proportional representation. So if you received 10% of the votes, you receive 10% of the seats in the Knesset. The Knesset is made up of 120 seats. Um, and basically what happens then is the party, normally the party who wins the most number of seats, is invited to, the leader of that party is invited to try to form a coalition. This is where things get interesting because they then have to find other parties who share their interests on certain issues. We're going to find anything across the board where they agree on everything, but they try to create a coalition. They offer different um, ministerialships to uh, different parties in order for them to join their coalition. And then that those parties are basically committed to voting with the government and voting with them. So in order to have a, um, a coalition that is effective and that works, you have to have over 60 seats because otherwise the opposition will have more votes than you in the Knesset. So most... Uh, uh, governments try to get somewhere around 65, 70, because if you're very, very razor edge uh, majority, one person can pull the whole thing down, and they don't want that to happen. So that was very expertly done. I, to, I just want to add to that to just make it clear. You sort of said it quickly, just to make clear that in addition to getting ministerial positions, they also come up with a, a government guideline that all the coalitions, the members write together, and so each party, like their main idea or what they're interested in, will be put into the coalition, and that's important in terms of what we'll talk about in a few minutes about. The, the parliament called the Knesset has 120 seats. That's the legislature, the body that makes laws. The executive, the government, that's going to run the country is going to be made up of more than half. And to do that, you have to bring a bunch of parties together. That's the mini-mini version. Right? Yep. Okay. Why in the world, Alan, did Bibi threaten to dissolve his government and call for new elections? So as we were talking before about the different parties in the government and the coalition having their, you know, pet topics, you could say. So, um to try and build the biggest coalition BB can and what has been called the 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 most right-wing government in Israel's history. I don't really know if that's true, but they call it that. Um, of course, they also... In- I don't know how you measure that, but it's purely right-wing party. Yeah, it's purely right-wing parties, but there's a, a, there's a number of different parties that um, obviously, again, right-wing, when we're talking about right-wing is usually when we talk about, you know, foreign policy, really. It's funny to put Haredi parties into that category. And also the other party that, that the real the sort of the the fight is coming down over, which is um, Lieberman's party, uh, Israel Britano, right? Is, is we call them right wing because they are more right wing when it comes to Palestinian issues. But the truth is, on civil issues, secular issues, social issues, they tend to be more left wing. Um, and I mean, the truth is, the, the the terminology itself is faulty, no matter which country you're in, because issues break in a funny way. This binary method we have for analyzing political positions is ultimately unhelpful. One hundred percent to point out here is that when we talk about right wing, there's the right wing politically and there's right wing religiously. And I think that's important to point out here because, for example, Shas and UTJ, they're not ideologically right wing parties in the political sense of Eretz Yisrael Shalema, from the river to the sea and all those sorts of things. Yes, they would probably, in most situations, support policies in that line, but that's not their raison d'etre. Their raison d'etre is to support their communities, which are the Haredi communities, and in the case of Shas, also have a socioeconomic 
leaning towards the lower socioeconomic uh, sections of society, whereas someone like Bai Yehudi or uh, Yusra Bateno are more interested in, when it comes to right-wing politically, are interested in borders, uh, settlements, things like that. Again, it's about, Mike is right about binary because that you're again talking politically, you're calling the Palestinian issue, which is not true because there's social issues also, which they tend to be, can be left or right. And uh, I just want to remind everybody that Shas um, enabled the whole Oslo um, vote to pass. They voted for Oslo. We're talking about those landers when Ravavadja was still, was still alive. Anyway. So the coalition basically has come down over a break in the exactly this the the Haredi ultra orthodox parties United Torah Judaism UTG which is a combination of different sub Haredi groups which is also sort of important. Haredi means essentially ultra orthodox for lack of a clearer, and they have their own political parties in the Knesset. Right. So they. Um, Why are there two different ones? Two different what? Shas and UTJ. Uh, Sephardi and Ashkenazi, but the Ashkenazi is made up of two sub-parties also. So, so because they have different countries of origin, they have different political representation in the Knesset, different parties. They're dif- different ethnic groups within the Jewish greater na- nation. They're sub-ethnic groups, and, and in addition to religious groups. So... So I mean, but to a Western person, that sounds bizarre, that you break political parties based on things like that. Okay. <laughs> There's also a further distinction between them is in Israel, the, the Sephardi society tends to be very traditional. Even if they're not religious, Sephardim tend to be closer to their traditions than the Ashkenazim who would the, the, than secular Ashkenazim, right? So, and Shas, the, the Sephardi Haredi party, also tried to appeal to that base of traditional Sephardim um, for a long time, very successfully. Right. So, an, an example of an example of that is which I have been discussing recently with some of my classes, the Haredi Ashkenazi Party, the UTJ, they do not do campaign ads on television because their supporters are not watching television. Whereas Shas, which is the Sephardi Haredi Party, they do, are showing TV ads because although they're not trying to, because in that case, they're trying to appeal to the traditional, uh, fan, their traditional base and are appealing to them through television and campaign ads as the other parties would as well. Okay, so explain the coalition crisis that's going on right now. So the coalition crisis is going on right now, which seems to have uh, calmed down and possibly averted, so it seems like the government will not fall, meaning the government will continue to function, is that um, the United Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, um, is part of its, one of its key, key issues is the draft. And um, uh, the... Um, What's the word? I'm just miss, not abstention. Uh, well, Haredim don't. Charedim, if you're in yeshiva, you have a uh, no. I don't exemption. know exemption, exemption from the draft. So, uh, or exempt, it's like it's exemption. Yeah, it's a, whatever exemption. In other words, you don't have to all all time that you are learning in yeshiva, you don't have to go into the army, and it's a blanket. Once you just have to sign up for yeshiva, yeshiva, and it's a blanket. well. You have to show you they you know they have people who come to check that you're in the yeshiva yeah, and things like that. Like it's a blanket. Like you don't have to apply for it. Really, you just have to be on the yeshiva list. Is really how you apply for it. Um, and I think show up when the inspectors come back. Yeah, and you have to be, you have to be, the shiva has to be registered, and all those kinds of things. But it's, uh, it's basically, and that law was changed in the last government um, when there was uh, uh, some other parties in it that tried to push through that there was their key issues in it, and the ultra orthodox were not in that party in that that government. So now they're trying to overturn that and redo the law so that the exemptions uh, play, and that is a major, major issue for a Haredi party. 
well, at the same time, Yisrael Beitenu, which is Avigdor Lieberman's party, which is a very strong uh, Russian influence, Russian Jewish influence, and and secular. Um, again, we say that when we talk about land and politics with the Palestinians, they tend to be more right wing. But when it comes to secular issues. Um, travel on Shabbat for public transportation or um, all, all kinds of things like that or mar- civil marriage they tend they those are things that are key issues for them so the draft is also a key issue for them that everybody should be drafted and equal but more particularly Avigdor Lieberman is the Minister of Defense so his claim is that any bill should be written by the Ministry of Defense. It should be in his prerogative to write any bill that's going to be passed um, which of course the Haredim don't like and over that Bo- both sides were threatening to cut out. How were they threatening? Because the ultra-Orthodox party was threatening not to, pa- not to vote for the budget. Not voting for the budget. Uh, they are six, I think, six. I think they have six, they have six uh, um, uh, M- MKs. And not voting for the budget would put into, into um, threat that the budget would not get passed. Uh, and, and Kahaloni who is the head of another party, which is a break-off Likud party, which is 10 ministers, who is the finance minister, says if the budget doesn't get passed this week, he's walking. Kahloni or Kahlon? Kahlon, sorry. Kahlon, sorry. Thank you. Kahlon uh, said that if his budget doesn't get passed this week, he's walking, which would cause the government to collapse. So it's like this little domino theory effect that each each... Each party is trying to flex their muscles in their department, and it, and it affects all the other coalition members. Well, well it, the puzzle pieces are really different and have to fit together. If they start chafing and not getting along, they can collapse the government. So can you explain, because <clears throat> I can't follow it, where this compromise position ends up? If the law that Yeshatid passed in the previous government was that the exemption is now disqualified, in other words, they will have to serve, that was reversed in the new coalition, which doesn't have Yishati, but has these Haredi parties. So this compromise, I don't get. What, what, do what is the compromise bill that Netanyahu is saying, vote for, or I will... What's in this bill? This bill, again, is is giving a blank statement. Before the, the Yeshatid, they don't want to get rid of all dispensations. That's the word I was looking for. All dispensations, meaning, uh, but they there's a certain amount. There's a certain amount of quota, a certain amount of people that could be learning at a time. So the Haredi parties want to go back to the old system where it's a blank statement. Um, I believe that, that that's the, the basic idea. In other words, as opposed to... There's, How is that a compromise and not a reversal? No, it is a reversal. So then what's the compromise? Why is it being called a compromise? Compromise with the Haredim. It's compromise in... Uh, you're not compromised. The, the Haredim are getting everything they want. Uh, I, I'm not sure what you're, talk, what you're referring to about the compromise. I mean... The bill, compromise. the bill is being called the compromise bill that Netanyahu worked out with the Haredim. He expects them to pass it, and he's demanding that they not threaten the coalition right. until the government ends. The bill is being called in the press a compromise. By what stretch of the imagination is it a compromise? Uh, don't know. <laughs> I guess Me neither. I also can't figure it out. I agree with you. I can't figure it out. But what, one thing is clear is that each time they move towards some kind of agreement of a compromise, then another party steps and says, okay, now I'm upset with what you've done. I'm not going to threaten to to bring down the government. Okay, okay, okay. We're going to we're going to solve it, so you'll be okay. And then, as you say, that what you called the puzzle pieces chafing together. Once you sort of get one squeezed in, another one kind of lifts up a bit, and they're all playing this kind of game of chicken almost. 
to see who is going to um, who's going to give up first. And I, and I understand that the word compromise means getting all the players in the coalition to get along and do something that they functionally will all agree to. Mm-hmm. But the bill itself, I don't think, is a compromise. It's just a reversal of changing it. We're going back to the old system where there's a blanket dispensation that if you're in yeshiva, there's no more quotas, there's no more... The Yeshatid bill said if you're, if you're somebody who is really... Uh, training, you're one of the elite who are really training to be rabbinic leaders or things like that, then you're serving the country that way. But an open blanket... But I think, if I remember correctly, and I'm, I may not, but I think I do, the Eshatid bill also, or their legislation, also had um, there was an allowance to go to Yeshiva for a certain number of years. So you could push off your service. It wasn't, it wasn't saying everybody has to go in at 18. Yeah. It was making that there was a certain amount of time you'd be allowed to go to yeshiva, and then after that you would have to go and join the army. And it was going to increase the number of the obligated Jews who would have to serve in the army. Right. This is now being all unraveled. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think that was the intention originally of the Haredi parties. What's interesting is why it's taken a number of years for it to come to this point. You would have thought that the first thing that would have been the, fa- the foundation of the, of the uh, coalition would have been to say, we're getting rid of this, otherwise we're not coming in at all. And that's what I understood was the original conditions of the Haredi parties to join. Why it's taken three years to come to a head like this is also not entirely clear to me. Well, I think it's probably, look, first, the pass- how laws are passed in Israel is complicated. There's multiple readings that it has to pass in that whole... That would be a really bad episode of Schoolhouse Rock, how a bill becomes a law in Israel. <laughs> but also, it, it's very politically unpalatable. The, the Yeshatid law was, very, was relatively popular mm-hmm. around the country. So doing that in the new government and starting off by undoing it is sort of leading with your chin politically. Waiting a few years and doing it when it's less of a hot-button issue may have been. I don't know. But it seems like the compromise is really over procedural things and not over content. Uh, if I'm understanding properly what's going on around me, I think I would probably agree with that to an extent. I, I think what the, I think what's happening is again the the previous law, which is the um, uh, the you know net, the, having equal uh, responsibility, as it's called, I guess in English, um, was much more of a blank statement. What they're doing is they're limiting the number now of Haridim that have to go into Shulumi or Army, and they're taking away any sanctions if they don't, things like that. In other words, they're... So it is a middle position. It's not going back to the way it was, but it's not doing the change. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be... It, I don't know if one would call it a middle position. I think it's more like, you know, not completely getting rid of this idea of that uh, Haredim should be doing some kind of national service, but it's not... It's taking the teeth out of the real laws. I think that's what's really doing. It's really taking the teeth out of it. It seems to be. So some of the old idea stands, even if the actual rules don't. Yeah, that seems to be it. And again, a lot of the argument is really because, and I think uh, President Rivlin said this the other day, you have more Haredim who are volunteering and uh, drafting voluntarily to to units Throughout the army, the army has opened up in every single um, infantry division. The army now has a Haredi unit, and before it was just in one. Now, in every single in in every single infantry, in in paratroopers, in Givati, in Golani, um, and people are are drafting. So, President Rivlin, Rivlin, who you know claims that that, that legislating this and is this, you know is less effective than cultural change uh, through education and. And uh, quite in, and quite honestly, the the carrot method, which is why do a lot of people in Haredim want to go into the army? 
because they want to get better jobs. And you can't really, you can't really get, you can't get better jobs. You can't go to university. You can't do anything really uh, on any kind of um, outside of service industry or teaching industry if you don't go in the army um, for, for many of these. So, you know, how much is the legislation cause more friction and doesn't actually really cause real change? Well, yeah, so that's a debate in society. In other words, different parties. That this law was very popular in some ways, but on the other side, many many people argue even, again, not not within the career world, but outside. I think even in Israel democracy and places that, that a cultural educational change is going to be much more effective. Right. I'm not, I'm not taking one side or the other in the law. I'm just trying to see what exactly did they concede, and it seems to me they're getting most of what they wanted, so... Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's co- that's the whole point of coalition politics. That's why you join a coalition. And that's why when you have these small parties, I, you know, that have their key issues, and this is a key issue for them, they get what they want. So am I understanding you correctly that it's a, it's not going back to the original status quo before the Yishatid law, the the law of equality or equal, what do we call it? Yeah, the, the law of equal, Sharing the burden law. It's the sharing the burden law. That's pretty good. <laughs> so in the sharing the burden law, it's not undoing it totally, but it's basically leaving it... N- it's not going back to the status quo before the sharing the burden law, but it's just about undoing it in all meaningful ways, leaving a little bit of political and social pressure to increase Haredi participation, but... Um, but really defanging the the strong right. stick pressure end of pushing them into the military. And if we just use... Just, sorry, this is one thing I, I think to add here is in most cases, most of the political parties in Israel want to be inside the coalition because that's where you have the most power. So for each of these these Haredi parties or, or even for Kahlon or whoever it is going to be to say we're going to leave, it's really a case of cutting your nose to spite your face because ultimately... Let's say they did decide to leave and collapse the government, and then there was a different coalition that was formed, and they weren't in it. Their power and the things that they can get out of being in the coalition would be significantly reduced. So it's really, like I said before, it's a game of who's going to blink first. That Just a last question. Why is Bibi so calm about dissolving his government? Doesn't he want to hold power? So, um, so a lot of commentators point to the fact that Bibi has been under serious investigation and there's expected indictment coming and where he may be um, having a lot of pressure politically uh, through these investigations, he's, his, his popularity has only gotten bigger with all this. So he might want to go to elections to force kind of the hand of the, of the police or whoever, have you, the, the attorney generals, those kinds of things. And an uh, interesting thing to point out also in all this pol- political chess moving, because this is really his political chess moving, is that Lieberman is the, the the Ministry of Defense. And these are is the weakest here because even though he, if he walks, the government doesn't fall. So if he can't bring down the government, he doesn't have. He may be flexing a lot of muscles, but he's the government has sixty seven seats, I think, yeah, right? Uh, sixty six, I think, and he's five, Six? and he's five, which means they would stay at sixty one. So the guy here, so the the religious are really playing off of the of Kahlon's party, really, because he's the which is ten, man, I think, which right? is ten, because he would bring down the government. Yeah. So that's what they're really playing off of, um, and so it looks like. We've actually averted it. It's not going to fall, but that's just the interesting. You know, it was at the you know the front of Israeli news for about a week. BB good, BB bad doesn't matter. The most canny, talented politician in the history of Israel. Uh, BB Netanyahu, no doubt, has to be. <laughs> no 
no, may not necessarily be a huge compliment, but it is. You got to give the guy credit. The man knows how to play the game. He's a survivor. And it's more than a survivor. If you want to see his brilliance, it's like go on to YouTube and watch his his presentation at APAC. It is brilliant. It is absolute BB. Uh, at at his top, um, at really rally. how he talks in English is is moderated differently than how he talks in Hebrew. He's very very talented yeah. at this. Yeah. He is. And he likes ice cream. Apparently pistachio ice cream, which is a good flavor. And cigars. <laughs> yeah, and champagne. All right. Well, <laughs> to, end, to end on that upbeat note, for fans of pistachio ice cream, champagne, and cigars, uh, that's what's going on now here in Israel. If you can't tell, we're slightly confused as well, so don't feel bad if the headlines confused you somewhat. Um, please send us your questions so that we can use you and send it to me with your name so I don't forget your name when we use it in the question of the week. Thank you so much, Alan. And thank you, Mike. Oh, and thank you, Matt. And thank you, Mike. Uh, I got two thanks. I feel spoiled. All right. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Jerusalem U, the Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please feel free to subscribe through whichever service you use. Also, come join us on the Facebook page and ask us questions and keep up to date with what we're doing. We love feedback. Also, we would really appreciate it if you could take a few minutes and review and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher. It would make a very big difference for us. And you would earn our eternal gratitude. Thanks so much. 